Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Fox Nomad Podcast. I'm your host, Fox Nomad, Anul Polat. I have a fascinating episode for you today. We're going to be talking all about Bonnie and Clyde. My guest is Allie Pennington. She is the Artifacts and Programs Manager for the Alcatraz East Crime Museum in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, where they have an exhibit on this very topic. She is also a historian, and she is here to join us and tell us about the story of these two iconic figures who have a very interesting past. They are absolutely captivating. They were in the 1930s, and they still are today, 88 years later. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Ali talking all about Bonnie and Clyde. All right, there we go. Thanks, uh, Ali, for for being a guest on the podcast. I am really excited to talk to you about this because one of my favorite movies <laughs> is the Bonnie and Clyde movie from the 60s. Yeah. Um, I don't know why I was fascinated as a kid. Um, and when you look at the the history of Bonnie and Clyde, right, like they're bad people, right? As, yes. You know. <laughs> Yeah. But we're just fascinated with them. They're they're heroes. So maybe you could walk us through where you know where the myth starts and and where does the actual story of these two people begin? Yeah, absolutely. So the Depression era in general is full of anti heroes, which I think is really what category Bonnie and Clyde fall into. Um, you know, the Depression hit, and a lot of the general public was really mad at the government and all of these structures, the banks, you know, any of these public institutions, because they felt that they were to blame for the depression, which, you know, there's a whole lot that went into that whole issue. And so when a figure like, you know, Bonnie and Clyde or John Dillinger, when they emerged and were actively working against those public institutions, the American public fell in love with them because they felt that they were fighting for them and for their, you know, this anti-government, anti-establishment mindset. And so I think that's, in their own time, that's one of the reasons that Bonnie and Clyde definitely kind of like rose to the top of the American anti-hero. But like you said, they were bad people, for sure. They did a lot of things that no one should really do <laughs> ever. Um, but I think that because of the time frame that they were in and their crime spree fell in, that that really made them popular. And then, you know, as the years and decades have gone on, America is still fascinated with that era of time. There's, you know, we're still making movies about John Dillinger and Bonnie and Clyde and all of these figures, Al Capone, you know. And so I think that has just kept their legacy alive as long as it has is because we're just fascinated by that era for sure and where where does where did their stories begin you know what what is before they were bonnie and clyde who 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 were these two people so they were both born in small towns in texas um and they were raised sort of differently um you know Clyde was born into a big family and they were tenant farmers in um, a place called Toledo, Texas and when the depression hit those communities were hit really really hard and so 
Clyde was 11 or 12, maybe, when his family picked up and moved into West Dallas, which is eventually where the two of them would meet. Um, but West Dallas was a rough neighborhood. Um, and, and honestly, Clyde really fit right in. His brother, Marvin, who was known as Buck, um, who was also a member of the Barrow Gang, was they were already criminals sort of you know they had been stealing turkeys and joyriding and cars by the time they were teenagers and so that escalated as time went on and as they moved into west dallas and there was more opportunity for them to get in trouble and so by the time that clyde met bonnie he was already a hardened criminal he really was he had already been tried on a number of different counts he'd been caught for different things um, and he, he was really on the run when the two of them met bonnie on the other hand um, the first four years of her life were pretty standard depression era childhood you know she was raised in a home with her mom and her dad um when she was four her dad suddenly died um and he was their income and so her mom and her two siblings and her moved in with her mother's parents in a rougher part of town um called cement city for short and that's where she spent most of her childhood um and she had huge dreams of wanting to be a Hollywood star. She absolutely idolized actress Clara Bow. And so, you know, she was into writing and she had all of these big dreams. And um, at 16, she dropped out of school and got married to a local criminal. So she, she Bonnie over romanticized a lot of things. Um, and so she was married when she met Clyde. And you know, so before they were Bonnie and Clyde, they were still Bonnie and Clyde. They were just um, not together yet, <laughs> I think is the best way to put it. Interesting. And and this is the 1910s, right? About yeah. when they were born, yeah. I believe. And, and so they meet in the 1920s, right? As a time. It's, it would be the, the 30s. So Clyde was born in, there's some debate, according to the Barrow family Bible, he was born in 1909. And Bonnie was born in 1910, according to her records, um, they would have met actually closer to the 30s. Um, so it would be, it might be actually 1930 proper um, that they first met. So they were in their early, you know, 20s, by the time that they met. And you know, in the in that time, you know, between 1910 and 1930, what, you know, Texas to me seems like it would be pretty remote. In other words, <laughs> there's just a lot of like empty space, right? Yeah. It's, it, 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 it would be so different. Um, I think there was just a massive amount of change between the early 1900s and the like 1950s in the in the in the Midwest. Um, what was life like, you know, in Dallas? You know, was it a like a, a popular city, big city or frontier I mean, city? I think our version of popular city and the 1920s, 1910s version of popular city are like pretty different. Um, and so basically Dallas was a very popular area um, for individuals like Clyde Barrow and his family where they had been in the outskirts in the farming communities you know, and, and there was a lot of migration happening in the United States during that time frame. Um, and there was movement westward, there was movement south, and just kind of all over the place. Um, and so Dallas itself was, for all intents and purposes, a pretty bustling town. Um, 
West Dallas specifically was um, where a lot of people with rougher backgrounds and, and who would be more inclined to criminal activity ended up in Dallas. Um, and so like the Barrow, the Barrow family, for instance, when they moved into town, they lived in this kind of like makeshift settlement that was on the very edge of West Dallas. They lived initially out of what had been their family's wagon um, and then like basically kind of a, for lack of a better image, like a Hooverville, you know, kind of tent ramshackle city. Um, they eventually were able to buy a two room building on a plot of land um, that they lived out of the back room and then ran a filling station out of the front room. And that's what his family did once they moved to West Dallas. And that took a, a bit of time for them to move from that sort of tent type living to living in this home. And even then, you know, he had several siblings all still living at home in one room. Um, so life, I think life in Dallas at the time, particularly when they met, um, would be pretty similar to life in any other city in the United States at the time. Um, there wasn't anything super different about it than any of the others because you know the great depression hit everywhere in the country it, it definitely hit other areas harder than certain areas but um but dallas was definitely hit and, and they definitely saw the the issues that came with it and with all of you know the depression era issues that came <laughs> and you 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 kind of mentioned that you know i'm sort of jumping around a little bit but that i guess robbery right they're famous for robbing how does that tie into the depression right so are people angry at the government and so they look at the banks as an extension of that or are they mad at the banks and they're like they're at least they're taking back our money or you know what's the, yeah. the rationale there it's you know i think it, it depends on who you ask <laughs> um what they're what they're mad at um i know that as a whole most of the population of the country was definitely mad at government policies and, and they felt that the government wasn't really doing much to help them recover from the depression. Um, and then also there's the whole idea that it's it's a financial depression is really what it is. It, it leads to other things, obviously, shortages and, and unemployment and everything like that, but it's it's financially based. And so I think... For a lot of people, it was any public institution that represented money or power. And, and that is, a, I, I truly believe, what uh, made a lot of people angry. As far as robbing goes, I, I, I think Clyde was a little predispositioned to, to go towards the robbing side, mostly because his older brother had. Because um, Buck Barrow had moved well into robbing things by the time that he and Clyde paired up um and Bonnie I think just kind of went along with him because she wanted to be with Clyde and that's how they ended up together but I think I think people saw them as heroes because of the idea that they're taking back stuff from the banks, but they didn't just steal from banks. They stole from, you know, gas stations, 
grocery stores, because that's where the money would have been. You know, most banks would not have had that much money left in them by the time that Bonnie and Clyde started working together. Um, so they were also robbing gas stations, stealing cars from citizens, you know, whatever they really, whatever they could find or feel like find felt like finding is what they would steal. Wow. And, and, you know, what would a robbery be like in those days? I mean, it sounds like a dumb question, but <laughs> it's, you know, just, it seems like it would be a lot, you know, how far across town would have people have to go, you know, there are no cameras in those days. There's no, you know, tracking or I don't, you know, money packets with, you know, ink dyes or anything like that. Yeah. So were people resistant to being robbed or was it, you know, what, what was it like? I mean, I think human nature makes us resistant to being robbed in, in one way or another. Um, I, I think a big part in catching people like this was, was sort of the idea that, um, oh, this has to be the Barrow Gang. Because in different accounts from their family members or from different people at the time, you know, every robbery belonged to Bonnie and Clyde in the area. It didn't matter if it was them or if it was somebody else, every robbery was done by Bonnie and Clyde. And so that really, I think, helps I guess, develop that kind of profile that we think of when we think of crime today. Um, it's like, oh, well, if it's a robbery, it's Bonnie and Clyde. And so that word then spread. So people then were on the lookout for Bonnie and Clyde. They knew that if they saw those two who matched that description, especially after they put photos of the two of them in the papers, then they knew, okay, they're going to shoot me if I try to resist. So then I think people, as their career went on in that idea that they were to be feared, grew people were less likely to resist them than they were early on in their career because they knew it's like they've killed before they'll kill again and so you know I think that they were would be resistant and I think um you know some people would obviously have you know fought back if they were being robbed but I think as their image and as that idealized version of them that came out with the papers developed that they people would just be like just take it I just want to live like I like don't rob me or rob me take whatever you want I just want to live <laughs> I mean this is almost a, even a, a dumber question on my part but were people like hey this is kind of cool I got robbed by Bonnie and Clyde I mean you know they're famous and you'll make the papers and if you just give the money over right like should go theoretically well for you you know yeah I mean I think from I've spoken to a number of like collectors and historians who really do focus on Bonnie and Clyde as like their specialty. And it seems like everybody who was around that area that they tended to work in had a Bonnie and Clyde story. And, and everybody is like, Oh, this is a jar of gravel from, you know, where Bonnie and Clyde robbed this bank or, you know, so it's from a historian perspective, it's sometimes it's difficult to know what, artifacts it's like okay that's legit like they were genuinely at that place at that time because everybody had a Bonnie and Clyde story so I think there was some like oh my goodness this is Bonnie and Clyde that would definitely have happened at the time for sure yeah not too different from from these days right sort of I can just imagine um I just imagine like you know people would be tweeting hey I just got robbed by Bonnie and Clyde or whatever if it was now (laughs) 
Um, so, so they meet, you know, they, she's married. Um, I don't know if she's, does she remain married the whole time she's with Clyde? She does. She, so by the time she met Clyde, she had separated technically from her husband, never legally. She remained legally married until the day that she died and she wore her wedding ring until the day that she died. Um, but her first, her husband was, um, he was a criminal in his own right, smaller time than what Clyde was, but um, he was definitely a criminal. And so he would be gone for long periods of time. And finally, she just was fed up with it. Um, he made lots of promises to her that he could not keep and she was done. And that's about the time that she met Clyde. Okay. So, um, yeah, so that paints a, a picture of, you know, I just, and, and you know, is there any, you know, do we know why she wore the wedding ring and, and, and how that affected her relationship with Clyde? I mean, just curious. I, I mean, I don't know for sure. We can definitely speculate on, on certain things. I think most records that we have of Bonnie show her to kind of be a hopeless romantic. So I think in some ways it was kind of that like hope like well maybe Roy will turn out you know like maybe he'll come back maybe it'll be fine and um you know there are several accounts including ones that came from her mother and her siblings that that really painted that picture that she truly was kind of a hopeless romantic um and when she met Clyde it was love at first sight and, and you know so it, it's kind of that she looked at the world with rose-colored glasses a little bit and so I think that that probably played a big role in her keeping her wedding ring on despite definitely being romantically entangled with Clyde interesting so so she did love Clyde right I mean I, I, it sounds like a, again a silly question but but it was it was not like she was uh, you know just going for the money right there was there was a romantic relationship there. yeah there was definitely a romantic relationship um, between the two of them for sure. And so they, 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 they go on this crime spree, um, which, right. If, if I'm not mistaken, people are killed, right. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how many people have they killed, but it is believed to be either 12 or 13. Um, it really depends on the historian. Cause again, it goes back to that. Some crimes have been attributed to the duo when they haven't, when we have, you know, less record of it actually being them but confirming wise we believe that there's been 12 deaths that can be truly and fully attributed to bonnie and clyde and were these people resisting or uh you know a number of them were law enforcement um a good portion of them were law enforcement others of them um were people who were being robbed for the most part um they didn't murder for no reason was not really their thing um, and I think after the first one happened <laughs> that they were like, okay, I've done it once. If I had to, I can do it again. And that's just kind of how it spiraled out to be the way that it is. So they never really went in with the intention of killing people, but it was almost like a, a byproduct of their crimes, um, which their main focus was always money, money right. and robbing. And, and do we know if Clyde, I'm assuming Bonnie had not committed murder before bonnie's first crime was sneaking a gun in to prison to help clyde escape um that was the first crime so with her with her husband she never committed any crimes she 
had a fiery personality and got into a number of fights in school as a kid, but she had never committed any crimes that um, anyone was ever aware of until um, she broke in, basically carried a gun in and gave it to Clyde so that he could break out shortly after they met. And that was the the start of her crime spree. Wow. I mean, and I mean, he must have had an impact on her. I, mean, I just wonder what those conversations or what that was like. I, I don't know if we know any of that, you know, what their early relationship was like. <laughs> um, a lot of what we know um, with most cases like these is, is secondhand information. We have some, you know, letters and some, you know, Bonnie wrote poetry sometimes about their, um, you know, their travels. But what we know mostly is what people around them said. And, and it truly boils down to, at least in the view of their families, as like they just fell madly in love with each other. Um, and it was one of those love at first sight. Clyde wanted Bonnie. Bonnie wanted Clyde. And that was the end of it. And there was no questioning that after it. Um, so we don't necessarily know what all of those conversations looked like, um, but she definitely was impacted by Clyde and Clyde's lifestyle because, like, I mean, like I said, they he was on the run when they met. Like, he was actively running from charges against him in the law when they met. So, you know, she knew, I think, what she was getting into, but but didn't necessarily care. And you said, I mean, this was not super uncommon for that part of Dallas at that time, that people would be involved with some amount of crime, right? Like, I'm just assuming that it wasn't so outside, like, he's robbing gas stations, or, you know, it's not that wild for for that time. Yeah, it it, it wasn't that wild um, for that area at that time. Um, His more so than necessarily robbing stores and stuff at the time that they were meeting, Clyde really loved cars. He was a car guy. He liked to drive. Um, and so he was known for joyriding in, in people's cars and, and auto theft was really what he got caught on a lot of the time. Um, and so that, that was very common because people were known to leave, you know, cars were new. Cars were fairly new at the time still. And so people are known to, you know, leave their keys in their car because they didn't think anybody would steal it or, you know, leave them on the dashboard, you know, so stuff like that happened a lot, um, just in the era as a whole, but particularly in West Dallas. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting. Cause I, for some reason, I think tied to the movie, I always think of them as being robbers in the forties and fifties and sixties, even though I know it's earlier, but there's just something that I place with that, with that time. Um, so yeah, so uh, now they put it like that, that yeah, cars are, I mean, really new. It must be, yeah. Um, wow. So they go on this crime. So had, had Clyde killed before? Had, had he, does, do we know if he has any murders before? Not that we're aware of. Um, he did not, as, as far as any record I have been able to find, he did not kill until after the Barrow gang really got going. Um, and after that first kill, it, you know, like other criminals, it, it I guess, got easier because they'd done it before. And and as this escalates, so they, they go on this crime spree, 
what is you know what does that look like and and how does it all end yeah so they lived on the road a lot um they were constantly bouncing from place to place to place in hopes that they weren't getting caught and that got more difficult as they became more notorious um you know they had their pictures in you know papers and everyone was talking about bonnie and clyde especially in texas and and so you know they did bounce around from state to state they actually only ever robbed one bank in texas um but life on the road was not as easy and romantic as sometimes we think of it as um because you know with sometimes the movies and all of the different pop culture mediums that have captured bonnie and clyde in one way or another um they kind of make it seem like it was like a romantic like oh they enjoy riding cars and they're like on this never-ending road trip vacation and they just happen to be stealing from people and um, life on the road was difficult um both bonnie and clyde were very close with their families and so being away from them definitely had an impact on them and they did make frequent contraband trips back home to see them um and that's actually played a role in how they got caught is that that pattern emerged it's like okay on holidays they go back or to see their family and so but they were living basically out of their car anything they could carry especially towards the end of their crime spree um it was whatever they had with them they'd make campsites out in the woods they'd be driving for long hours at a time and um, they would constantly switch vehicles if they thought that they were like somebody was on their trail from a vehicle that they had stolen they'd switch to a different car that they stole um the beginning more so they stayed in like motor lodges and hotels and things like that every once in a while and um, when they had the money to and when they didn't think they would get caught um but after a few times people almost apprehending them because, you know, a group of five people, three of which have shotgun wounds or, you know, gunshot wounds. It's like, okay, maybe that, that red flag. Um, so <laughs> after, you know, time went on and um, particularly after Buck Barrel was captured or was killed and his wife Blanche was captured and they just lived out of their car on the road, wherever they could go um, and tried to to stick it out. I think Clyde really knew how it was going to end. Um, he did some time at um, Easton Prison Farm right after he met Bonnie. And that facility was usually restricted to really hardened criminals. Um, and at that point, Clyde was a criminal, yes, but he had um, still not reached that level and every member of his family everyone who was close to him say that his time after that really changed him and changed his mindset he would never talk about it um but they said that he was definitely a different person when he got out of Easton. and after that it was very clear clyde would never go back to prison ever um he would fight to the death or die trying <laughs> like that was you know that was the end of him and, and i think bonnie may not have realized that um but she was so dedicated to clyde that that um once the end came she knew that that was how it was gonna end and what did the end look like how did their lives end uh you know i know the movie version but i don't know if i know the, yeah. the actual version so it it definitely ended um 
in a hailstorm of, of bullets. Um, they were caught by a team of law enforcement officers um, who managed to track them down. It was led by Frank Frank Hamer, who was a former Texas Ranger, because the Rangers didn't really exist at the time anymore. Um, but he was commissioned with another like small team of guys to basically track them down and bring them in dead or alive and they knew that they would not take them alive uh, you know it was by the time that they were close to catching them they knew that there was no way so basically an ambush was set up um they were staying with um a gentleman's parents who had been in the barrow gang for a while um and the parents sold bonnie and clyde out to get a lesser sentence for their son. Um, so in order for, his name's Henry Methvin, in order for Henry Methvin to not get the death penalty, his parents set up Bonnie and Clyde to be killed by Frank Hamer and his posse. And so they set up on the side of a road that they knew that he was coming to. Henry's father pretended to you know, have his truck broken down on the side of the road. When they saw it was him, they pulled over to help and they the posse unloaded into the car, killing both. So that wow. is how they ended. That's how their lives ended. Wow. Um and and like you said, I guess, you know, that th there was no way out. I I feel like um do you think there was any you you mentioned that there they Clyde was not going to go alive, right? He was not going to yeah. be captured. Do you think that he he knew that from the beginning? But do you think it was different for Bonnie? Do you think she wanted out of the life or she would just keep going? Do you know? Do we know if there was any regret on her part, perhaps? I don't know that we know for sure. Um, you know, we we do have some of her her writing um from her time on the run. I think maybe in the beginning she figured that she could possibly get out um and that she would you know maybe can even convince Clyde to go straight who knows um but I I really think as the Barrow gang started to kind of disintegrate and members either left um or got killed or apprehended I think as it got to be just Bonnie and Clyde um she knew she I think I feel like she also knew that that they were going to die because I think she recognized that Clyde wasn't going to go down and she wanted to be with Clyde so I think possibly at the beginning there was some hesitancy to Bonnie um but I think by the end of it she also knew that there was there was no going alive it just wasn't going to happen and it doesn't seem like you know they were the type of people to have like a grand plan, right? They it doesn't seem like they had a 10 year plan of we're going to rob all of this and then escape to this place and, you know, live our lives out or anything like, like that. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't think that there was, <laughs> I really don't. Um, I think, I think like most depression era criminals of the same nature, they had, you know, dreams of like, Oh, in five years, we'll have all the money we need and da, 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 da. But I think that, they, they just did what they wanted in that moment. I think they knew that they'd be on the run and they, I think they, part of them really enjoyed being on the run, even if it was difficult. Um, and so they, most of the time they just stole whatever they would need for the next few days or the next week. 
um, and that was all that they took. And so I, I don't think that they had a, a long-term, a concrete long-term grand plan. I, I really don't. And so what is the, you know, when they're, when they're killed, what happens then to both in the, I guess, in the media, but also this, the, the crime that was more or less common at the time, right? These big, like you mentioned Dillinger and all, all of these people, does that sort of end or does that actually bring up other people who maybe want to, you know, want that notoriety? Does it kind of go both yeah. ways? I, th I think it, I think it goes both ways on that front. Um, the media definitely latched on to the fact that they were dead. Um, their vehicle was taken back into town and it was swarmed by crowds of people who all wanted, you know, a souvenir from the death car and, and from Bonnie and Clyde, be it, you know, clips of hair, broken window glass, you know, any of that kind of stuff people really wanted. And their funerals were attended by thousands of people um, and much to Bonnie's dismay, they were buried separately. She wanted them to be buried together, but she, they were buried in completely different cemeteries. And there were there was aftermath for the families as well. Um, most of their close family members did some amount of jail time for harboring fugitives because they knew the law enforcement officers knew that they had been going back to see their families and that their families covered for them. And so they, you know, there was that sort of ending as well. You know, these families then had to kind of pick up their lives and, and figure out, okay, what's our next step after, you know, we serve prison terms and all of this stuff. Um, but it's hard to say whether Bonnie and Clyde individually really affected sort of the crime world in that time. Um, obviously, they've left a legacy for sure. Um, we still talk about Bonnie and Clyde, and it's been eighty-eight years. So, um, like, clearly they've yeah. <laughs> they they did their they got the fame they wanted, I guess, in a weird way. Um, that era not only saw. Um, public enemies like Bonnie and Clyde, but also like John Dillinger and um, Pretty Boy Floyd, those were all around the same time. It also saw a rise in law enforcement efforts against them. So there was a huge crackdown law enforcement wise on individuals like Bonnie and Clyde. So, I mean, I think there was definitely some copycat crimes um with crimes of that notoriety there usually always are in that era but i think that the law enforcement definitely upped their game after bonnie and clyde's death for sure and and what was the public reaction were people i mean upset were they happy you know a mix i it, i think it's another mix and you know Different people definitely had different opinions of Bonnie and Clyde. Um, a good portion of people did see them as that anti-hero, and, and they were sad to see them die, and they felt that it was, you know, a, a crime against, you know, whatever anti-government force they want to be called, I guess. Um, but I think that with as many law enforcement officers that they had killed, um, I think that the law enforcement definitely were able to take a breath and were 
happy that they were gone because it was they were no longer a threat there were still obviously other threats in the area and during the time but those two who were so notorious and who attracted so much attention were gone and I think that 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 was really telling of of one side of that story and so it's a mix it's definitely a mix and as a historian what is it like to you know research these two people are so famous in a time where there probably aren't a, a whole lot of records um you know there's less you know I, I maybe there are less media postings you know there's less references what, what is it like to to try to learn about who these people were it's i mean <laughs> bonnie and clyde are one of those couples that even though it's during a time that there's not a lot of records, we still know quite a bit. Um, we just don't know a lot from their perspective. So we look at things like, what did the families say? Because multiple family members wrote books about them. Um, they, you know, did news interviews at the time. There was a lot of media coverage. So which, you know, media can go either way even back then um and so you always have to take that kind of with a grain of salt and look for bias in those sources but in researching bonnie and clyde you know you can learn a lot about a person by what the people close to them think about them and so i think that that is really important to look at but also to know that there's bias in those accounts too so it's it's difficult to research subjects like this but as notorious as those two are um there really is a lot of information out there about them and is there something that drew you to uh, you know bonnie and clyde is it just it happened you know to be something you were working on or i mean bonnie and clyde i've been interested in bonnie and clyde for a long time um but i think we've looked a lot at depression era criminals this year and I think that um when we were trying to decide what to do for this particular exhibit that we've done um we were already in depression era criminal land and so it was like Bonnie and Clyde obviously like they're the next choice so I think that's really we, we kind of fell into it more so than <laughs> it was like Bonnie and Clyde is what we're doing now so it was like okay Bonnie and Clyde yeah let's do it <laughs> and what kind of things can can visitors see at the exhibit well, you know how is it set up yeah, absolutely. So we feature things from before they were criminals, from during when they were criminals, but also things like all of these pop culture, um, you know, mediums that have since kept that legacy on. So the exhibit really seeks to tell the story of Bonnie and Clyde from their childhood forward. Um, so they can expect to see things like, um, you know, We've got some stuff from one of Clyde's only upstanding jobs. He worked for Procter and Gamble for a very short amount of time, and we've got some pay stubs of his. Um, we've got some newspapers um, from the era that, you know, talk about Bonnie and Clyde and talk about their crime spree and kind of follow that media trail through their story. Um, we talk about, you know, 
the Barrow family filling station, we've got some objects from it. Um, and then as far as pop culture goes, we've got some costumes from some different iterations of Bonnie and Clyde. Um, we always have the death car from the 1967 movie on display. And so it's on display really close to the exhibit. So they can always see that on display as well. That's cool. Um, that, that leads me to two questions. Tennessee, I don't think was on their path, right? They, they didn't make it into Tennessee. Um, is there, uh, you know, so th there's no connection in terms of them physically being in Tennessee, right? That No, not that we're aware of. <laughs> that, that's, that's still, it's still cool. Yeah. Um, there, as far as I know, there are no dinosaurs, any of the dinosaur exhibits, right? So like, no. uh, <laughs> And there's one thing, I think I'm remembering this right from the movies, but there's like a scene where they're driving and they're being chased by police and they cross the state line and the police just turn back. Is that something that actually happened in those days or it seems kind of ridiculous, but. It could have happened, I think. Um, I don't know specifically if it happened with Bonnie and Clyde. Um, but state jurisdiction versus federal jurisdiction was a huge deal back then. It's still a huge deal, obviously, today. But law enforcement agencies didn't work together as well as they do today back then. And so the example, the best example I can give is John Dillinger. Um, John Dillinger had committed a number of crimes in a number of different states and had all of these individual state law enforcement agencies investigating him, but not working together. When he last escaped from prison, he stole a sheriff's car and drove it across the state line. And that broke the National Motor Vehicle Theft Act, which had been put in place. And so then it became a federal investigation in which they could use all of the resources that those state people had found in all of their investigations and get all of them involved to eventually bring Dillinger down. So I can't say for sure whether Bonnie and Clyde that specifically happened, but it is possible that it that it happened. Interesting. Yeah, it rem I had read a book about how the five families, the, the mafia in, in New York, mm -hmm. it's a great book. It's very long, but it's very interesting. And it, 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 it sort of shows you the how the laws had to adapt to the, the way the crimes were being committed because they couldn't, I guess they couldn't, you know, before, I guess the RICO law, they couldn't combine all of these accounts. And if you told someone to kill somebody, you know, you ordered them at a, you know, one point years ago, you couldn't be charged with a crime or something like that. You know, they had to adapt the laws and, and state things. So it was very interesting. Um, so I guess it's something similar. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, that still happens today. There's, there are certainly some instances where the laws are still catching up to criminals. Um, we work pretty closely with law enforcement agencies throughout the, com the country, not just in Tennessee, and things like terrorism and the growth of technology and white collar crime, like technology is always advancing and adapting. And back then was no exception to that rule. And so law enforcement had to keep up with the criminals and so they had to adapt and the law had to adapt to give them that ability to apprehend them as it went on much like it does today that's why laws are always changing and is there something you know from bonnie and clyde's story as as we wrap things up that that you take away personally that you find personally interesting or that um you know maybe some something that surprised you or that people might not know about 
always find um, Clyde's brother, Buck, and his wife, Blanche. I find their story very interesting. Um, Blanche is one of the few core members of the Barrow Gang that actually makes it out alive. She serves, she's apprehended, she serves her time, and then she lives a quiet existence for the rest of her life. Um, I find their story just really interesting. Um, she was a preacher's daughter. Um, at one point, she had convinced Buck to go straight. He served part of his time, and, and you know, um, and then Clyde's, Clyde convinced Buck to come back to a life of crime, and Blanche followed him. Blanche said, you know what, I'm, I will go with you. Um, I want to be with you. And so I find their story really, really fascinating. She actually wrote a book about her time with Bonnie and Clyde called, I believe my story with Bonnie and Clyde or my life with Bonnie and Clyde. It's by Blanche Barrow Caldwell. Um, but I just find her very interesting specifically, but also her relationship with Buck and how it differed from that of Bonnie and Clyde. Cause I don't think Bonnie ever attempted to convince Clyde fully to go straight. I, I don't think that ever happened. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting, you know, because I, for me, the part of the story of both of them is so interesting is that they're in a relationship and committing these crimes. I find that fascinating that, like, you, you know what I mean? I, I just find it so, I would love to be a fly on the wall and hear what the conversations were like, what the day to day, you know, when they're not committing crimes, like what those were they enjoying life? Were they fighting? I, I, you, you know what I mean? I, yeah. It, th those kind of things I, I, I just, I find fascinating. I think probably from her book, from Blanche's book, we might know, we might get a glimpse into that, I guess. Yeah, she definitely gives a little bit into that. I, I mean, it wasn't all sunshine and roses for sure. They definitely had their arguments over the way certain things were handled. Um, they had arguments over how money was split and, and you know, things like that and um, I think every couple fights at some point in time. Um, but I, I think that the stress of life on the road definitely did not help <laughs> with that fact. Um, and, and so it's interesting. I think Blanche does a really good job of giving the dynamic of exactly what it felt like to live with Bonnie and Clyde. Cause she, she does actually talk about what life was like on the road. And, and was, you know, were couples committing crimes common? I mean, or are they pretty unusual? They're, they're pretty unusual. Um, I think women committing violent crimes such as that were still unusual back then. Um, it was mostly, for lack of a better way to put it, it was a male-dominated field. It really was. Um, and so I think that probably also played into the the fame of Bonnie and Clyde is that, oh, this is a couple. And also they're unmarried. She's married to another guy and they are actively living together, which did not happen in the 1930s. And, and so there was just, you know, there was that sex angle to it as well. And so I think that definitely contributed, but no, I, I don't believe that there were that many couples committing crimes like these guys did. <laughs> wow. Well, it's, it's totally fascinating. Um, how long is the exhibit open and where can people find it? 
Yeah, absolutely. So it opens October 21st and it'll be open for two years. So it'll close in September of 2024. So there's a little bit of time for people to come and see it. Um, it is included with the price of admission into the museum. We are located right on the parkway in Pigeon Forge. You can't miss us. We look like a prison um, and it is, <laughs> we do. We look like a prison on the outside, just right on the side of the road. Um, and so people can come by and see it um, with just general admission along with all of our other exhibits and fun things that we've got going on. Well, I, I hope people do make it out. It just seems, like I said, very fascinating. Um, and the, the research into the exhibit, clearly, you know, I feel that there's so much story there and that there's been a lot of time and hard work put into making sure that it's the story's filled out, you know? So, um, Thank you very much for your time. I really enjoyed this conversation. I, I'm assuming like a lot of people, I'm just totally fascinated by the Bonnie and Clyde story. I just, I find it so bizarre in a weird, like it just, you're like you said, there's so many elements of it that don't fit with the time. You know, <laughs> yeah. just don't it, It's time. almost like they were a little bit ahead of their time. Um, just a little bit. Um, but yeah, it's, it, I think it's going to be really interesting. Um, the exhibit is going to be really, really cool. Um, and I think people are really going to enjoy looking at kind of almost a behind the scenes look at Bonnie and Clyde, because um, there was a lot more to them than just cigar smoke, for sure. <laughs> yeah, it, it makes you wonder what they would be doing if they were alive in our time, you know, or, or if they had a sort yeah. of a normal... <laughs> If they if they grew up maybe in a better circumstance, you know what how their minds worked, and, and I just imagine them posting a bunch of stuff as they're committing crimes. But you know, yeah. <laughs> that's the going Facebook thing. Live. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. Cool. Well, I will leave a link to the uh, museum and the exhibit in the show notes, where everybody can can find out more and make plans to visit. Thank you again very much for your time. Um, is there anything else that I did I miss anything that that I no. Um, we are, I mean, we are always getting new objects and new exhibits. And um, the best way to keep up with all of that is to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Um, we're constantly posting on all of those. Um, so check us out. We do also do giveaways and things like that on our Facebook page. Um, but other than that, no, I think that's, you know, that's about it. Thanks for having me. We're really excited about the exhibit and excited for people to come see it. Thank you, Ali, for being a guest on the podcast. And thank all of you for listening. Make sure that you check out the links if you happen to be in the Pigeon Forge, Knoxville, Tennessee area. If you want to check out the exhibit, it's going on for the next two years. It's at the Alcatraz East Crime Museum. If this conversation hasn't just absolutely made you more fascinated by these two, um, I, I think it's definitely worth checking out. So make sure that you take a look at the show notes and you can follow them all on social media. And also thank all of you for your five-star reviews of the Fox Nomad podcast. It helps us get the word out. I tweeted this a couple weeks ago, but since season four has started and we are now just in the very early part of season four, we hit the top we hit the top list on Apple Podcasts. I, I want to say it was like the top hundred already, even though we had taken like three or four months off for the summer. I can't thank you enough for that. So thank you all. Thank you for your reviews. They help get the word out. Like I said, I am looking forward to sharing the next episode with you. But until then, I hope you have a great rest of your day.